Of course, first thing to do, as His Holiness um, reminded us today, is to take refuge in the three jewels and uh, to generate bodhicitta. So let's um, do that by reciting the short combined refuge in bodhicitta prayer composed by Atisha. I think most people probably know that. Sanju Chudong Suji Chodam La Janju Badu Dani Chodsuji Dagi Jinzo Jipe Sunamji Rula Pinchi Sanji Drubajo Sanju Chudong Suji Chodam La Janju Badu Dani Chodsuji Dagi jinzo jibe sunamji Drola pinji sanji drubajo Sanji chudong suchi chunamla Janju badu dani chasuji Dagi jinzo jibe sunamji Drola pinji sanji drubajo Uh, so, Kempo uh, Mitila asked me if I would teach the seven points of mind training uh, this year, in particular the commentary on the seven points of mind training composed by the fifth Shama Rinpoche, Kunju Yenlak. Uh, there are many commentaries on this uh, subject, the seven points of mind training, uh, but the one composed by the fish Rinpoche is very uh, direct and very easy to understand and uh, so uh, in a way easy to apply in one way it's difficult because the mind training is extraordinarily uh, powerful teaching because it is ask, asking us to transform uh, strongest habits of mind which are the habits of self-cherishing and self-clinging and the mind training teaching is directed right towards those habits uh, we could summarize the whole mind training teaching in just two lines which is that we should stop cherishing ourselves and instead cherish others so it's very simple and easy to say these lines, but they're extremely difficult to, to, to realize them, to, to live in accord with them. So, to begin with, let me say a little bit of introduction to the teaching and to the particular text and its transmission. As you all know, I think, Lord Buddha gave innumerable different teachings. Actually, according to tradition, we say he gave 84,000 different teachings. And this is in order to suit the different capacities of disciples, the different motivations of disciples, and so on and so forth. But if we summarize those 84,000 different teachings given by Lord Buddha, we can say that they fall into two main categories according to the motivation of the disciples. Uh, 
So those two main categories of the Buddha's teachings are the Shravaka or disciple vehicle, which is popularly known as the Hinayana, the lesser vehicle, and the Mahayana, the great vehicle. Because the crucial distinction between those two divisions of Lord Buddha's teaching is that the first category, the Hinayana, are the teachings given by Buddha for those disciples whose motivation is only to achieve their own individual happiness and freedom from suffering but without much regard to the situation of other beings. So we call this the vehicle of the disciples, or the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana. But for those of his disciples who had a much wider, much greater motivation, that is, they wished to find a way to show other beings the way to freedom from suffering, Lord Buddha taught the Mahayana, the great vehicle, or the Bodhisattva vehicle. So the teachings of the mind training belong to that second category. They are Mahayana teachings. And then concerning the Mahayana, it was expounded by Lord Buddha in his discourses alongside the discourses he gave on the Hinayana but the very systematic way of practicing the Mahayana was set out by the great masters uh, who followed Lord Buddha in India the great Panditas and Acharyas like Nagarjuna and uh, Asanga and so on and the way they taught the Mahayana was through extensive texts which showed the crucial stages of the path from the level of a beginner to the level of Buddhahood. And also in those texts they dealt with difficult issues and problems within the teaching. So we call these text, the Shastras, the explanatory commentaries on the Buddha's sutras. And if we uh, look at those uh, Shastras, we see that there are two main lineages, what we call the lineage of the profound view and the lineage of vast activity. The lineage of profound view is the teaching inspired by the Bodhisattva Manjushri and taught by Nagarjuna, Aryadeva, Chandrakirti and Shantideva in which the Mahayana path, the Bodhisattva path is set out but with a special emphasis on the wisdom of emptiness hence it's called the lineage of the profound view. But the other lineage in which the Shastras were transmitted, the explanatory commentaries were transmitted in India, as I referred to, the lineage of vast activity. That is the lineage that stems from the Bodhisattva Maitreya and then was transmitted through the human masters 
Asanga, Vasubandhu, Stiramati, and others. And again, although the entire path of Mahayana is contained in their treatises, there's a special emphasis on compassionate activity. So those are the two great lineages that we see in the Mahayana in India. And as I say, in both of them, the main form the teaching took was in these very extensive, uh, detailed commentarial presentations of the teaching. So you need to be very learned in order to follow the Mahayana path that is set out in those presentations. But alongside that, there is another way the Mahayana teaching was presented in India. And that is in the form of short instructions for meditation practice. And initially this lineage was just orally transmitted. The teachings were just passed from master to disciple. And the most important of those oral instructions of the Mahayana were called mind training. Or it, it, when it came to Tibet, it was translated by the Tibetan term lojong, which means something like mind training or mind uh, transformation. And the thing about the lojong teaching is that they enable even very unlearned people who have not time or uh, inclination to study the very big presentations of Mahayana, they enable people like that to directly access the teachings which can carry us along the Mahayana path to Buddhahood. Because they're concerned, as I mentioned earlier, with direct transformation of our ordinary habits associated with the disturbing emotions. Ordinary habits of self-clinging and self-cherishing. So we do not have to be very learned to practice the Lojong. So these Lojong teachings were brought to Tibet primarily by the Indian master Atisha, who was born around about 980 uh, of the Christian era in Bengal and came to Tibet in about 1040. He didn't write the Lojong teachings down because he would just transmit them privately to uh, his disciples. And in fact, uh, it was only subsequently that his most important Lojong teachings were put into written form. Atisha himself had received the, these Lojong teachings from three main masters, two in India and one in Indonesia. The two in India were Dhammarakshita and Maitri Yogin, and the third one was a master called Dharmakirti. Uh, he's not to be confused with the, the great Buddhist philosopher, he's a different master. And Dhammakirti that lived in Indonesia, which at that time was at least partially Buddhist. So Atisha had to make a very dangerous sea journey from India to Indonesia 
to meet Dhammakoti and to receive the, the Lojong teachings. And when he himself, when Itishi himself taught in Tibet, it said that uh, he always praised Dhammakoti of the chief of his masters, because actually he stood with many masters of Hinayana, Mahayana and Vajrayana, but the chief one for him was Dhammakoti, because he felt that through him he'd really realized the essence of Dharma through the Lojong teachings. So, uh, so Atisha transmitted the, the Lojong through some of his disciples. The most important one was uh, his disciple called Dromten. And then Dromten transmitted it to a few of his disciples. And we find that it's about 1150, in other words, about 100 years after Tisha's death, when the seven-point Lojong system is first put into writing by a master called Chekawa, or Geshi Chekawa, the spiritual friend Chekawa. And it's his root text of the seven points of mind training that we're, that we're going to study. Geshi Chekawa uh, passed it to his student, Chubupa, who then wrote a commentary, because what Geshe Chekawa did is he just wrote the mind training that he received from his masters in a list of kind of short slogans, or kind of short sentences. And they need, although they're very easy to remember, they need, of course, some unpacking, some explanation of how we're to practice them, how we're to apply them. So, Chupupa wrote the first commentary and then the teaching proved so popular uh, in Tibet, especially in the Kadampa tradition to which Chekawa belonged, that quite quickly many other commentaries were, were composed. And in fact, although this teaching spread first among the Kadampas, it went into all the other traditions so that later on we find there are commentaries written by Gelugpa masters, and Sakyapa masters, and yeah, Kajupa masters, like Jamgon Kontrol in the, in the 19th century. And of course, like the fifth Shama Rinpoche in the 16th century. So that is a little bit about the lineage of the teaching. So now I want to actually begin teaching from the, from the text. And I'll... I'll teach, uh, I'll teach it line by line because that's exactly the way that, that the 14 Shamrin Bache taught it and, uh, and then explain the significance of the lines where it's necessary. So it is the commentary on the seven points of mind training, an abbreviated commentary on the seven points of mind training. So the text begins in this way. I take refuge in the perfect Lama and in the most precious mind of awakening. So, this is the introductory part of Shamakuncha Inlek's commentary. And as is normal in the introduction to a text, respect is paid to the basis of the teaching. And that respect is paid here by taking refuge 
as he says in the perfect Lama, and in generating the bodhicitta, the bodhisattva motivation. The, the, the glorious Dharma, the glorious Dharma Lord Atisha received these key instructions on training in developing bodhicitta, the mind of awakening from Lama Selingpa. Lama Selingpa, Selingpa means the Lama from the Golden Isle, which is the name of one of the Indonesian islands, the Indonesian island that he actually lived in. So his Sanskrit name was Dharmakirti, but his nickname is Selingpa. So, already in that sentence, we can see what the key uh, content of this teaching will be. It is training in developing bodhicitta, the mind of awakening. Although there are many different teachings on the subject, this has been composed according to the spiritual friend, or Geshe in Tibetan, spiritual friend Chekawa's seven-point system. Actually, the, uh, there's a famous collection of Lojan teachings from the 14th century called the Lojan Jatsa, which means the hundred different systems of Lojong. So there's the eight verses of Lojong, there's the eight points of Lojong, there's the Lojong which is like the wheel of sharp weapons, the Lojong like the peacock that eats poison, and many different systems of Lojong, but the most famous among them is this, the seven-point system composed by Chekawa. So the seven points, and as the contents of this teaching, are firstly, the preliminaries, which present the practitioner's basic Dharma teachings. Second, the main practice, training in Bodhicitta, the awakening mind. Third, transforming adverse circumstances or difficult circumstances into the path of awakening. Fourth, explanations on incorporating the practice during one's lifetime. Fifth, evaluating progress in mind training. Sixth, the mind training commitments or uh, better translation is pledges. And seven, the mind training guidelines. So, we begin of course with the first point. So how the text works is, there's a line from the root text, the seven points of Geshe Chekhova, and then in fifth Shama's, then comes the fifth Shama's commentary, which expounds what that means and how we're to practice it. So the first line of the root text is the first point of mind training. In the root text it says, firstly, train in the preliminaries. That's all it says. So, the fifth Shama, like the other commentaries, uh, explains this line as being an instruction for us to turn our mind to Dharma, to enter the Dharma properly, through reflecting on the famous basic teachings known as the four points, the four thoughts, or the four thoughts that turn the mind to Dharma, Lodo Namshi, in Tibetan. So this win is taught in all the traditions. In the Kajupa system, of course, it is what is called the ordinary or common Nundro, 
in the Lamrim of the Kadampas and the Gelugpas, it is taught. In the Sakya, it's taught. Even in Nyingma, the four thoughts that turn the mind to Dharma are taught. So we can say, this is the common basis upon which all systems of meditation rest. That with, as Patrambhite says, if our mind has not been changed by the four thoughts that turn the mind to Dharma, then to hear other teachings will just be to waste them. So, this is what Shamanabhite says. Firstly, consider the fact that although we now have a human body, it will be difficult to obtain one in the future. In other words, the first preliminary reflection for us to, to consider and develop a real uh, heartfelt understanding of is the preciousness of our human life which as Gampopa says is the working basis in which the seed of the Buddha nature is located for us but although it is this working basis it is very rare to have such a working basis in the vastness of samsara in the vast number of different life forms there are human birth is very rare so we call this is rarity by number if you consider how many sentient beings there are all of whom according to Lord Buddha possess Buddha nature the potential for enlightenment but then consider how few have human life in comparison to that we will immediately be struck by how rare it is that we have this right now and when one considers that mere possession of physical human birth is not precious human birth it's only human life in which there is freedom and connection with Dharma that constitutes that then we will understand it is very rare and its rarity is also due to the rarity of the causes from which precious human birth comes that is to say the cause of human birth is the prior practice of virtue and yet even if we consider ourselves and other humans we can see how infrequently virtue is practiced and how frequently non-virtue, selfishness is practiced so even the basis for getting a human life is very rare and then one considers that according to the teachings that 18 different factors that have to come together 8 aspects of freedom 10 aspects of endowment of connection with Dharma 18 have to come together for us to have a precious human birth in which we can engage properly in the Dharma we can see again it's very rare and then as Shama Rinpoche also points out the fish Shama Rinpoche points out it will be difficult to obtain again if we lose it now and that reminds us of the, the famous analogy that Lord Buddha made in the sutras about the blind turtle which has the task of putting its neck through a yoke floating on the surface of the ocean when it only has the opportunity to come up once every hundred years. Lord Buddha said, having fallen to the animal realm, to regain human life will be more difficult than that. So altogether, our human life is 
incredibly precious because of the opportunity for practicing Dharma, but incredibly rare and once lost, very, very difficult to find. So with that reflection in mind, we determine to make use of it. And then the second preliminary, according to Shamakunji Inlak, is this, impermanence. Consider that the time of death is uncertain. It may arrive all of a sudden. Usually we say, in considering this, first think that death is certain. The death will happen to all of us. As we, as Patrin pointed out, uh, death will happen to even the greatest of beings, the most powerful or even the most holy beings. Death will happen to all beings. In other words, there's nobody in history who's avoided death. And what's more, our life is itself a very compound phenomenon, just a coming together of mind and different physical elements. So, having come together, it will inevitably separate. So, death is certain. And, of course, also, death is certain because we are never going further away from death, but always going nearer to it with each day and each hour that passes. So, death is certain. And here, Shamarim Bhattay points out that it's certain to happen, but even more poignantly, when it will happen, we don't know. It may arrive all of a sudden. And that is because we don't have any contract with anybody that says, you can stay alive for such and such a time. Nobody is born with, with such a contract. There's no such deal ever been made. If you sign such a deal, you've been cheated. There is no such, there is no such thing. And besides which, you know, people may say, oh well, science is making it easier for us to put off death. Are you sure? Maybe in the laboratory next door, other scientists are making it easier for death to come quickly. So I think it's, it's not true. Death is just, the time of death is just as uncertain as it, as it ever was. Because as it pointed out, there are few causes that, and conditions that help life, but many causes that can hinder it or even steal it. We live in an incredibly fragile, delicate world. A slight change in temperature or in the, the, the gases that we breathe can just take our life just like that. So, death is certain, but it's time is not. And that, of course, leads us back to precious human birth, because how long does precious human birth last? How long do I have to practice Dharma? The answer is, I have this minute. I have no certainty of anything else. And then thirdly, Shamakunti Yala says, for a third thought, consider that all cyclic existence entails suffering. In other words, he has put the suffering of samsara or the false of samsara is the third thought. Sometimes it's the fourth, but here's the third. And the point is that by considering precious human birth and impermanence, 
we may decide to engage in Dharma, we should decide to engage in Dharma, but perhaps we still think, through the Dharma, I can improve my situation in samsara. I don't, okay, there are problems with where I'm at in samsara now, it's not a very nice neighborhood, neighbors are always having parties, things like that, but if I move my address, I will go to somewhere much better. Board of London, try Los Angeles. I think that's, that would be just perfect there. No, it won't. All cyclic existence, it doesn't say excluding Los Angeles, all cyclic existence entails suffering. All cyclic existence. So, now we have to look at samsara. And therefore you should remember the teachings you've for this you should remember the teachings you've had on the the nature of suffering. That you know, suffering comes in many guises. Yes, there's the suffering of suffering, kind of if you like the, the suffering of the, the lower realms, the hell realms, the ghost realms and animal realms. Which due to the continuum of mind being unbroken, we can go to if the causes of those realms are in our mind. We will produce those experiences after death for ourselves. So we can acknowledge quite easily those realms are realms of great misery and great torment brought about by our own disturbing emotions. But perhaps we think that human life is not so bad or the higher realms like the God realm, these would be good. But that is to neglect the second type of suffering, to ignore that, the suffering of change. As Lord Buddha said, every new object of happiness turns into a suffering in due course. Everything that we invest in, thinking it is going to be a, permanent, a cause of permanent happiness, never turns out to be that. Even those things which bring us momentary happiness will disappoint us eventually, either because they don't match up to our expectations or because due to impermanence, they disappear. Because that's the thing. Difference, one difference between the suffering of suffering and the suffering of change is that there's only one good thing about the suffering of suffering, like being in hell or ghost from animals. It's good when it stops. But with the suffering of change, it's the other way around. First it's happiness, but when it goes, it's suffering. So, every new object of happiness becomes suffering Eventually, that's the suffering of change. And that is to disillusion us. That is to, why should we be disillusioned? Because if we don't reject samsara, we will remain in this prison. Sometimes the prison is very ugly, sometimes it's very pretty, but it is all a prison in which we are subject to suffering, like a bee that's trapped in a jar. It flies up and down, sometimes in the lower realms, sometimes the higher realms, but it is always in the, in the jar. And underlying those two sufferings, there's a suffering of conditionality, which is this. I'm grasping at this body and mind as if it is a real solid entity, as if it is really an I, really a self as if it is, there is something here permanent, singular, autonomous. There is a real identity in itself, 
But that is a mistake. And in clinging to this, I'm fighting against the nature of the world, the nature of reality. So deep down underlying these other two sufferings, I've got this suffering, the suffering of a tremendous divorce between myself and reality. And that gives me a tremendous tension. It's like I'm fighting the world all the time. I disguise it by trying to fill, obscure this by pleasure and ambition and possessions and all the rest of it. But deep down there is a fundamental suffering of fighting against reality. So we call that the suffering of conditionality. What to do? Well, to, we should opt for freedom. As long as we are clinging to samsara, as long as we are clinging to the world of cyclic existence, birth, death, birth, death, we are bound to a wheel of suffering. Why not choose freedom? And then the fourth thought, the way Shamakunji presents it, is karma. Sometimes karma is number three and suffering is number four. Shamakunji says this, consider that suffering originates in non-virtue and happiness originates in goodness or, or virtue if you like. Where does the, where do the different features that I experience in samsara, the temporary good parts and the negative parts, where do they come from? Well, they don't come from a God because we don't see any external creator when we examine the world. But neither do they just come about by random chance. Neither can we blame anybody else for our happiness or uh, suffering. Rather, the, it comes about as a ripening of our actions, of karma. So, that for, for us Buddhists, the creator is karma, actions. Actions make, make the world. And specifically, non-virtuous actions create suffering. There is, in other words, a relationship of dependency, of similarity and dependency between non-virtue and its consequence, which is suffering. What do we mean by non-virtue? In Christian religion, theistic religion in general, essentially non-virtue is some kind of disobedience to an external being, to, to the creator of the universe. But this cannot be how we understand non-virtue or virtue in a Buddhist sense. No, for us, non-virtue is something arising in the intention, in the mind. So Nagarjuna defines it like this. Non-virtuous actions are those done by mind under the influence of the three poisons. Desire, hatred and ignorance. Desire the wish to appropriate, to possess for oneself. Hatred, the wish to damage and annihilate, to protect oneself. And ignorance, the refusal to acknowledge the link between cause and effect. The deliberate turning away from seeing how the world works. 
Those are the three poisons and actions which originate in intentions colored by those any one of those three poisons are non-virtue and they cannot cause other than suffering. That's how the world works because they say there is a dependency a connection between the act and the result. Virtue is the opposite. Virtue is actions done by mind motivated by overcoming those three poisons. Not the mere absence of the three poisons, by the way. That would mean, that would be a karmically neutral act, one which would bear no fruit. But the mind that has overcome hatred to others, and that overcoming of hatred inspires action, that is a virtuous action, and that will produce happiness. So mind that instead of wishing to annihilate and damage others' life, wishes to preserve it, preserve the lives of others, and acts inspired by that wish to preserve the lives of others, is a virtuous mind. The mind that doesn't wish to appropriate and grab for itself, but wishes to share and benefit others by whatever it has, is a virtuous mind. It's one that's overcome desire and greed. And the mind that acts by understanding how cause and effect works is a mind that's overcome ignorance and therefore again is a virtuous mind. That is how, how it is. That is how we define non-virtue and virtue. And being as there is no other cause for our experiences in this life, past lives and future lives, than our actions... And being as our actions arise from the choices we make between virtuous states of mind and non-virtuous states, we need to pay attention to this. If we don't pay attention for this, we'll have no foundation for Dharma practice. If we think we can proceed to point two in the Lojong, or point two in any of the Dharma, without developing an ethical basis, we are completely misguided. It will not, it will not work. So that is why the teaching on karma is one of the four thoughts that turn the mind to dharma. Because it, it teaches us a need for developing an ethical basis. For as Nagarjuna says in the friendly letter, morality is the basis of uh, all qualities, just like the earth is the basis upon which all beings rest. So these are the four thoughts, the ordinary preliminaries. Actually, the late Shama Rinpoche, the one we all knew so well, loved so much, Rinpoche also said that we could, if we are practitioners of the Mahamudra Nundro, we could include the uncommon Nundro, the prostrations and the Vajrasarva and the Mandala and the Guru Yoga at this point. In other words, in addition to the common uh, ordinary preliminaries which we've just uh, expounded from the fifth Shamanbhita's text, one could add in the uh, uncommon nundro at this at this point. So that is the the first of the seven points, and it is the briefest. So now we come to the second point which is in some ways the, 
the uh, uh, not the most important, all of them are important, but uh, the one that needs the most attention. Because the second point is the actual practice or the main practice. The practice, the main meditation practice is for Lojong. This is what um, Shamakunja Yanlak says. The second point, the main practice, is training in developing both aspects of awakening mind. Awakening mind is English translation from the Bodhicitta, of course. Ultimate Bodhicitta and conventional Bodhicitta. So, actually there's, there's two big words there. Ultimate and conventional. And therefore we need perhaps to before going any further with the commentary to, to get a kind of working definition of what is meant by those two terms. I mean, maybe you know, but, but it's good to restate it in case some people don't. Because as Arya Deva says, all the teachings of the Buddha uh, can be assigned to either conventional truth or ultimate truth. So, conventional truth we can define it in this way. Conventional truth is that which seems to be true, to be existent when it's seen by a mind that doesn't analyze. You know, we make our definition, our distinction between the two truths on the basis of who is actually the subject mind, the subject, the mind that's looking. So, when you have, when your senses are working, your eyes, your ears, and so on are working, and you encounter things, you see things, hear things, whatever, but you don't analyze exactly their nature, you rather take them as they appear, that is conventional truth. That is conventional truth. So conventional truth is like, here's a red table. Why is it a red table? Well, because I'm not so blind that I can't see it's a red table. My eyes work sufficiently well, or even better now, I can see it's a red table. It's a red table because I can put a cup on it. I can put this, that and the other. It's supportive. It's made of wood. It has four legs. It's a table. It's not a zebra. It's not a jacuzzi. I can't bathe in it. I can't ride on it. But I, I can rest things on it, so it is a table. A zebra, thinking it was a zebra or a jacuzzi, this would be a mistaken conventional truth. But a correct conventional truth is, it's a table. But if I analyze this appearance, table, I can actually deconstruct it. I can deconstruct it. I can take it apart into constituents into constituent parts. And when I chop this table up into constituent parts, I can't find any table anymore. Instead, I realize that the notion of table is just a label I'm putting on those other appearances. Because if I put them together in a certain way, they can function. But that's relative. It's not ultimate. Whatever can be deconstructed, whatever can be found to be divisible into parts, whatever is dependent on causing conditions, and finally, whatever is dependent on a mind that labels it as so, is a conventional truth, because it's 
dependent, it's relative. When examined by mind, it analyzes, it's not ultimately so. So all the Buddhist teachings also fall into these two categories. Teachings that work, that are efficacious, but involve seeing the world in a way without real deep analysis. So it's for instance like saying, I will help you, you will help me. Actually, if we really were to examine I, you, help, we'd see none of those terms exist independently. They're all just dependent, one upon the other. That's the ultimate nature. They're empty of independence, of intrinsic nature. But if I don't analyze them, they seem to work. So, in generating bodhicitta, the enlightened mind, it's the same. There is a bodhicitta, an awakening mind, an enlightened mind, that arises without examination of reality, that just arises out of developing love and compassion, concern for others. And we call this conventional, or if you like, I don't, but some people do, relative bodhicitta. And then there's the ultimate awakening mind, the mind that sees reality as it is, that is endowed, in other words, with transcendental wisdom, primordial wisdom, which sees there aren't any independent entities, that the profound truth of everything is emptiness, lack of intrinsic nature. And these are the true sides of the Mahayana. Remember I talked about the two great lineages in India. Profound view, vast activity. Profound view, the side of ultimate truth, of emptiness. Vast activity, the side of conventional truth. Compassionate activity for others. So if we're to transform our present mind, self-cherishing and self-clinging, into the mind of awakening, the mind of enlightenment, we have to work in both ways. On the conventional side and on the ultimate side. On conventional truth, through loving kindness, compassion, etc. And ultimate truth through developing wisdom. Now, here's something very startling about the Lojong teaching. Usually, in those great Shastras and in most presentations of the Mahayana teaching, conventional bodhicitta is taught first. Because it's, in a way, easier. It's easier to begin with the concepts people have and to gradually soften their minds through them, to make them more gentle. Work with ideas like I and other and say, be more kind, be more thoughtful, be more patient with others before you get to deep stuff like, but you don't really exist and neither does he or she. But Lojong is different. Lojong starts with the ultimate bodhicitta and then presents the conventional bodhicitta. And Rinpoche said that the reason for this is very important, which is that by starting with ultimate bodhicitta, even though we may not be able to realize it profoundly for a long time, but by beginning with it, we create a kind of space. We kind of loosen the idea of I 
sufficiently so that real compassion and engagement with others can happen. That is a feature of conventional bodhicitta. So, dissolve or weaken the habitual notion of self through ultimate bodhicitta and you create an openness, a gap, a space where the heart can really then open to others. So this is the reason, Rinpoche says, for starting with ultimate bodhicitta rather than conventional bodhicitta. And as I said, it's a special characteristic of the Lojong teachings. So, now, here's what the fifth Shamimbiche says. So, we start with the ultimate bodhicitta, the instructions for how to practice that. And it also has a preparation, what you do at the beginning of the session, then the main part, the heart of the session, and then the conclusion part of the session. So, let's now follow through the instructions. So, the preparation phase, this is what Kunchiyama says, the preparation phase takes place before the Lama and the three jewels, whether they are materially present, it's like actually present, or visualized. So, of course, when we're meditating at home, when we're practicing at home, then the Lama will not, except in extraordinary circumstances, be present there. And neither will the three jewels, except maybe on the shrine. So, the sense is, first generate the conviction in their presence, kind of visualize that the Lama and the three jewels are present, because the Lama and the three jewels are of course the support for your practice. Recite the Manam refuge until the mind has been transformed. Then offer a seven branch prayer and develop Bodhicitta thus. So, in different Lojong commentaries it, 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 it says take refuge but it's only in this one of the Fishamrinpaches that this specific type of refuge called the Manam refuge is mentioned. And the Manam refuge is um, the refuge that Tangtong Jiaopo actually uh, taught. So it's there at the beginning of the extensive Chenrezig meditation of Tangtong Jiaopo and it begins uh, all, uh, all mothers as vast as space uh, take refuge in the Lama, the precious Buddha all mothers as vast as space take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha all mothers as vast as space take refuge in the Lama, Yidam and Dakini and all mothers as vast as space take refuge in uh, the nature of mind emptiness, luminosity, Dharmakaya so this is quite a long refuge to take. Shamibite, or the fish Shamibite, mentions it here. And then generate Bodhicitta. And so he uh, presents the Bodhicitta prayer which he wants us to practice following the refuge. And it's actually the Bodhisattva vow. It is the Bodhisattva vow according to the Manjushri lineage, which in uh, Sakyankaju and Nyingma we usually take that particular lineage of the Bodhisattva vow. So it is like this. Until the heart of awakening has become manifest, I take refuge in the Buddhas. Likewise, I take refuge in the Dharma and the assembly of Bodhisattvas. 
That is actually the uncommon refuge which must precede the Bodhisattva vow. And it continues. Just as the Sugatas, those gone to bliss, it's an epithet for the Buddhas, just as the Sugatas of the past cultivated awakening mind and progressively trained as Bodhisattvas, stage by stage for the sake of beings, I too will foster awakening mind and train just as they did, stage by stage. Those of you who are practicing the Kajunundo will recognize this, of course, because it's exactly the Bodhisattva vow that follows the refuge and prostrations. So it in, in itself it has a refuge, albeit it's the uncommon refuge, until we achieve, uh, because it's until we achieve the essence of enlightenment rather than just the end of his life. And then it's the vow, the vow of aspiration to become a Buddha for the sake of others and then the commitment to apply oneself in the training of the six perfections, the Bodhisattva training, to make that a reality. So in this short prayer we have refuge and we have the two forms of, two phases of Bodhicitta. So, Shamrimbhaje, or Fifth Shama continues, With this, practice refuge and bodhicitta. Invoke the deities and lamas and offer an extensive seven-branch prayer. So, what does he mean, invoke the lamas and deities? Well, Shamrimbhaje, 14 Shamrimbhaje, that is, in teaching this, said that this will be particularly appropriate if you are a Vajrayana practitioner, if you are practicing the Mahamudra Nundro or other Vajrayana practices, you could at this point practice, for instance, short Guru Yoga in order to receive the, the blessings of the Guru. And indeed, in other Lojong commentaries, it actually teaches a method of meditating on the Guru above your head and praying to him or her for the blessings of love, compassion and the bodhicitta to arise in your mind and then visualizing that the Lama descends through your fontanelle and then comes into your heart center where he rests upon a lotus and is enclosed in a, a kind of tent of light. So if one has some teachings on Guru Yoga one could do a, a version of it at this point after the refuge and bodhicitta. But it would be a Guru Yoga dedicated to the Lojong lineage. In other words, one would see one's Lama as the embodiment of all the Lamas of the Lojong transmission. So, Atisha, the early Kadampas, and so on, down to the fifth Shamarimpache, and then transmitted down to the present day, all embodied in the form of the single Lama on your, on your head. So that is possible if you are a Vajrayana practitioner. Rinpoche said. And he says also offer an extensive seven branch prayer. So Rinpoche uh, emphasized this is very beneficial uh, to do this seven branch prayer as a preparation for the main practice. Um, one could take the seven branch prayer from a number of different sources. For instance, one could take it from the King of Aspirations prayer, or the, as it's called often, the prayer of uh, excellent activity, the prayer presented by the Bodhisattva Samantha Bhadra. The first part of that is 
a seven branch puja so you could take it from there or you could take it from Shantideva's entering the Bodhisattva conduct or you could use the short seven branch prayer composed by the great nun Lakshminkara or in Tibetan Galongma Palmo that is found in the Chenrezig puja so you could do any version of the seven branch prayer you like and Rinpoche explained that the benefits of doing it are really very great because with the first branch we make in our mind prostrations but not ordinary just any ordinary prostrations but we think that in the whole universe in every atom in the whole universe there are Buddhas surrounded by Bodhisattvas and we ourselves also our bodies are multiplied to infinity so with all these bodies we are making prostrations in front of an infinite number of Buddhas and by in doing that we really purify many negativities and then secondly we offer the verse of offerings offering all beautiful things to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and in that way we gain great merit because there's no better practice for accumulating merit than, than giving and then thirdly we make confession confession of our negativities later on in the seven points we'll have some more details about the practice of confession and how important it is but again confession is a very strong way to purify actions done under the influence of the three poisons that we talked about earlier desire, aggression and ignorance and then the fourth branch is rejoicing rejoicing in the virtue done by ordinary people by shravakas and solitary realizers on the Hinayana path by bodhisattvas up to Buddhas what is the benefit of that? well rejoicing is an antidote to jealousy you see even in we don't leave aside jealousy when we, when we become Buddhists, uh, when we sign on to the Buddhist club. Okay, we're not so jealous of other people's clothes anymore. Actually, I wouldn't be certain of that, but not so much. Or other people's cars and uh, so on and so forth. But we may be jealous of how many lamas they know, how many initiations they've received. Did the lama smile more at them than me? Oh no, his own come up and was looking at the person next to me, but not at me. So we're very jealous in Dharma, of course. We just have a whole different set of status objects. But in rejoicing when others do good, we conquer that jealousy, that competitiveness. And actually we also are carried up by their goodness, by their good actions, we're inspired by it we kind of share in it, we share in the merit whenever we rejoice, re- rejoice in somebody doing something good it kind of helps us we become stronger, more inspired happier and then the fifth uh, limb of the seven line puja is requesting that the wheel of dharma be turned it's a little bit funny that we could say because if the Buddhas are compassionate, surely they're always turning the wheel of Dharma. Why do we need to remind them? They didn't forget. It's because it's for us. It's like the prostrations. Would the Buddhas be upset if we didn't prostrate to them? No, no, it's for me. It makes me better to prostrate to the Buddhas. Similarly with requesting the wheel of Dharma be turned. 
it mm, opens my heart to the Dharma. So I'm open to it because I actually requested it. And then similarly with the sixth, the sixth limb is requesting the Buddhas not to pass into cessation. How can they? Buddhas, activity is inconceivable, endless compassion until the whole of samsara is emptied. And being as there's an infinite be- number of beings, that isn't going to happen any time too soon. So, in one way, we don't need to ask them not to stop, not to go into kind of a retirement camp for Buddha's cessation. They're not going to do that. But for me, it means that I maintain my connection. I prolong my connection with the, with the Buddhas or the Lamas and so on by requesting them not to enter Nirvana. And the seventh limb is dedication. All these virtuous practices, the six first limbs, whatever goodness I've made by them, I generate to my goal. And my goal is what? Buddhahood for the benefit of others. So the seven limb practice is really so important. Uh, Jamgon Contra says the early Kadampa Geshis used to make this their main kind of ritual practice. And uh, it's, it's why it should be a, a big part of our daily practice. It's like the kind of the food, the, nutri- the nutrition for baby bodhisattvas like our cells. So, refuge, bodhicitta, and seven branch prayer. Then the next stage, we still haven't reached the main part, the next stage of the preparation is advice for preparing the mind directly for meditation. And Shaman Bhutte said, this is a kind of a, is a instruction in shamatha, or in Tibetan, shine, calm abiding. Because right now, our mind is very rigid. It hasn't got any kind of subtlety, any kind of suppleness. It's very fixed and rigid. So, turning it towards the deep matter of the nature of reality, is not easy. But, that's where we want it to go in the main part of the practice. So we need to loosen up, kind of make the mind a little bit more limber, so to speak. And this is where some practice of shamatha will come in very useful. It is not a very extensive shamatha instruction, but it is a shamatha instruction nevertheless. So this is what the fifth shamatha commentary says. Having done those prayers, Straighten your physical posture and breathe serenely in and out 21 times. No more, no less. So, in other words, we, the type of shamatha we're going to practice is a shamatha involving attentiveness to the breath. There are many types of shamatha. Often in Mahayana, is taught to do shamatha on a visual object, like a, a stone or a flower, even a piece of wood or a lamp, or a holy object like the form of the Buddha, Buddha Shakyamuni, or Buddha Amitabha, or sometimes even on the syllables, the, the three Buddha syllables, or Mahum. But here is on the breath. And reason for that is because First of all, it's very easy and very pleasant. Uh, everybody's breathing. Well, until you're dead, everybody's breathing. So, no big deal about 
producing it. You don't have to look very far. You're breathing. You can pay attention to it. But also there's a subtle reason, which is, as explained in the Tantras, the mind, as it says in the Tantras, the mind rides the breath like a rider rides a horse. So if we can control the breath a little bit, the mind will follow. Not that this is a kind of pranayama, this is not a yogic exercise, like vase breathing or these kind of pranayama practices we have in Vajrayana, but nevertheless, still, the mind will follow a little bit the calmness of the, of the breath, so it will slow down and become a little bit more supple, a little bit looser, a little bit more gentle. The actual Rinpoche himself uh, said that although his predecessor says no more, no less, Rinpoche himself says if it's going well, you can go further. And in fact, he says you can even go up to 108, if you like. So Rinpoche said you do 20, you count, so you count on the out breath, so one completed breath, one, one second completed breath, two, next three. Obviously not out loud, <laughs> mentally. And up to 21. Then rest for a, short, for a moment or two and then start again until the mind starts to become gentle and somewhat still. Not achieved deep absorption, but just kind of flexible and easy to, to direct. And Rinpoche also said that if you want, if it will help you follow the breath, you can imagine that the breath is kind of in the form of a beam of light coming in and coming in and out. Uh, this is not mentioned in the other Lojong, in the usually Lojong commentaries, but Rinpoche added this as a special kind of helpful uh, additional focus point for this following the breath. And he said also that because that the gaze you have is very important. The, the way you, because, because you don't meditate with your eyes open, not wide staring either, but, but somewhat open. Because of the two problems for shamatha, sinking and scattering, sinking is the more subtle one. Scattering is when the, the mind at first just won't rest. It's just jumping after one thought or, or another. But by aligning the mind with the coming and going of the breath, first through the counting, it usually deals with scattering. But then, when the mind is a little bit settled, then this second obstacle comes in, which is sinking. Because you know how it is. Usually we're so agitated most of the time, whenever things become a bit peaceful, we associate that with going to sleep. The only time most of us are peaceful, hopefully. <laughs> so, thinking or this drowsiness and uh, so on is a more subtle meditation problem and the way to counteract that is by the gaze there are many ways actually but the important one is if you if drowsiness is occurring in your practice to lift the gaze usually in shamatha we meditate a kind of an line from the tip of the nose so a little bit downwards but if we're drowsy then we, we lift our vision and this kind of brings a little bit more air and light into our practice. So, that means that we need to guard our meditation with Drempa and Shebjim. Drempa and Shebjim is mindfulness and clear comprehension. Uh, so that we are aware 
of what is happening in our practice and also where the conditions around us. For instance, if drowsiness is a problem, don't meditate in a dark room. Don't meditate in an overwarm room. Make sure there's plenty of light, if possible natural light, but otherwise artificial light, and wear light clothing and, and so on and so forth. So we need to kind of be aware of our surroundings and attentive to what is going on in our meditation. So this is how one becomes a suitable vessel for meditative stability. So now, the main practice. The main practice of ultimate bodhicitta. And so, that has two phases. First, what we call analytical meditation, and secondly, settling meditation. Kegom and Jogom in Tibetan. Analytical and settling. Some people think that wisdom can arise just through analytical meditation. But analytical meditation is using concepts. With that we will never actually uh, go beyond concepts. Other people think that all is necessary is just settling meditation, non-conceptual meditation. But with that we will just remain stupid. We need to, as the great Mipam Rinpoche says, and all the masters of the Kajusaki in Masai, we need to have a meditation on emptiness, on ultimate bodhicitta, which has both aspects, analytical and settling. So because the mind is a little bit settled through the shamatha, in the main part now we start with the analytical meditation. And then, here's the important point. When he taught this, Rinpoche, I mean the 14th Shamimiche explained that what is so profound about this ultimate bodhicitta meditation from the Kadampas in the Lojong is that actually we can say it is Sutra Mahamudra. It is the, the what we know in the Kaju as the Mahamudra from the Sutra tradition. In other words, it's not the Mahamudra taught in the Tantras which relies upon receiving initiation and practicing the development and completion stages but it is a Mahamudra that arises through calm abiding and insight so for Rinpoche this ultimate bodhicitta meditation is the is the Sutra Mahamudra and in doing so of course in explaining it this way Rinpoche is going back to the the great kind of uh, presentation of Gampopa the great father of the Kaju tradition. So, analytical meditation first. And there are three lines in the root text which explain how we're to do this. First one says, the first line says in Geshe Chekhov's root text, consider all phenomena as dreams. So, What are we doing? Well, in the great treatises, the great philosophical treatises, we'll have, there are intellectual arguments which propound emptiness, which either explain why everything is empty, or by destroying all other views, contrary to emptiness, 
all we're left with is emptiness. But these are intellectual teachings which can create in us a certainty of understanding but not of experience. In other words, we eliminate our intellectual doubts about the teaching through such expositions of emptiness but we don't actually experience emptiness. Here in the Lojong, the meditation of ultimate bodhicitta is a way to actually experience through meditation the nature of emptiness. That is very important. Rinpoche stressed this very much in his teaching that it is not merely logical arguments we're concerned with here. Logical arguments support this, but we are trying to, as it were, look directly into our experience and realize emptiness. So that's it. We're looking into our experience. So the first thing is this. What our present vision of the world, present way of relating to the world, is dependent on a division into subject and object. We up to now have considered that there are true external objects, the world, which is out there, and which I, myself, perceive. As long as there are truly existent objects which I am perceiving, I am real, I am solid, I have a true identity. In other words, our vision of the world is dualistic. It's got these two polarities. Objects, subject. World, self. Appearances, mind. It underlies every opinion we have about the world. It underlies our emotions. Desire, hatred and ignorance are based upon this fractured vision of the world, this dualistic vision of the world. Without this dualistic vision of the world, there would be no grounds for desire, hatred and ignorance. So here in this meditation we're going to look directly into experience to see if there are, if this vision of the world is true or if it's fictional. So we start with the world of objects. Are there really external objects separate from mind? Geshe says, consider all phenomena as dreams. And Shamakunji says under this, consider that they, phenomena of course, are nothing more than the mind's confused projections and do not exist outside of it. Rinpoche put it like this, uh, when we fall asleep, we have many experiences. We experience many events, perceive many objects, whether pleasant or unpleasant or whatever. And all of them seem utterly real to us at the time. The adventures, the objects, pleasant or fearful, whatever they are, they all seem completely real. Yet on awakening they've all disappeared. It's not that they've even gone anywhere, they just are not existent. We realize in fact they were never there. They were just the play of the of the mind. And yet actually there is nothing to 
differentiate them from the experiences we're having now. There's nothing that makes these experiences, in fact, in reality, any different. Yes, they seem real to me. They must be real, because they seem real. But I could have say the same about my dream experiences when I'm asleep. Oh no, they must be real, because everybody's seeing this world the same way. No, no, they're not. As it's explained, if we take something that I might consider a glass of water, a hell being will see it as molten iron. A hungry ghost will see it as blood and pus. An aquatic animal will see it as home. A god will see it as nectar. An asura will see it as weapons. Yes, most humans will see it as water that they may drink. What does that prove? Only that we have similar karmic imprints which dispose us to see the world in a similar way. But none of us even see the same glass of water exactly. We have similar imprints, we project similar things, but not identical. Of course, language makes us forget that because we've all agreed to say certain words. Well, some of us have. Some of us agreed to say chew, some water, some vasa, and all the rest of it. And that, again, makes us think that everybody's having the same experience, seeing the same appearance, but they're not. Actually, all appearances are contingent on the perceiving mind. But the world must be real. It's out there. No. If the world is really out there, separate from my mind, I'd have no contact with it. There would be a gulf, a gap of non-existence between me and this other thing, the world. But it's seamless. There's a continuity. There's no ultimate division. So however much I want to believe in the reality of objects, that's just it. I want to believe in the reality of objects because it makes me feel I'm real. If I'm perceiving objects, I must be here. So actually there are no objects separate from the perceiving consciousness. And that is how we can say, consider all phenomena as like dreams. So that's what we do when in our meditation. The first thing to do is to see how whatever is arising right now in my mind in meditation is just the play of my mind. I may comment on it and say, oh, that's external, but that's just it. I only commented after the experience and labeled it as external. In the actual moment of experience, there is no commentary going on which tells me it's external. That's an afterthought, a rewriting of the experience to conform to my clinging, my neurotic clinging, insistence that there must be an external world or else I will disappear. So we loosen that. And in doing so, our mind becomes very spacious and relaxed. Already a whole bunch of our neuroses have started to dissolve because they're not taking seriously the idea of external objects. Does that mean that whatever I think therefore is real? No, no. This is not like that. Because what we see, why we see certain things, is in accord with our karma. And so for human beings, as I explained, what is relative to their karma is to see water as water. It is dependent on their karmic projections 
but it is valid for them to see it as water and not as blood and pus like hungry ghosts. So it is not, this is not a doctrine of absolute relativity as whatever I wish to be is, is there. It is what corresponds to our karmic imprints which arise in the mind. That's the world we, we, we see. So, to just go a little bit further with this analysis so we can totally disappear, at least analytically, and then settle on it tomorrow. The next line of the root text says, Examine the unborn nature of awareness. Examine the unborn nature of awareness. Hmm, we may be a little time. <laughs> unborn means not produced. Unborn. So now we're looking at the subject, the perceiver. I may see and say, yes, there isn't an external world, but I am real. The perceiving mind is real. That's here. But in that case, then I've got still the grounds for attachment and aversion and all the rest of the samsaric emotions. So I must now look into the mind and see if there is really such an entity, such an identity. Keshe Chakra says, consider the unborn awareness. And Shamakunchi Yunlak says, consider that mind is also free from beginning, cessation and dwelling. To, if, for entities to exist, as they explained in Pramana, in logic, they must even relatively speaking, have uh, location, have duration in time, and have an extension, kind of shape and color. So does mind have any of these characteristics? To which, as, can we get hold of mind and say, here it is, it is an object, it's really true. So if it had duration, it would have a beginning, a point of beginning. It would have duration now and it would have a point of cessation. Something that doesn't have these, doesn't exist in these three phases can't be said to exist as an entity. So mind's beginning. Actually we can't find any point where mind begins as if it didn't exist before and suddenly comes into being. Because nothing can come from nothing. If mind was a state of nothingness it didn't, nothing can just magically arise out of nothing. But if we say, well, mind arose from something, what was that? It can't arise from the sperm and ovum of the parents at conception, when life begins, because they're non-sentient. They're physical, they're form, and they're not endowed with sentience. So for sentience, the consciousness to arise from non-conscious elements is a violation of cause and effect. It's magic, it's kind of voodoo. It's like Pinocchio suddenly becoming real. A real boy. You know, he, I don't disappoint you, but he didn't. He was always wooden. So we, there's no way we can point to, that's mind's beginning. Either from nothingness, or then we say, well, mind already existed. If mind already existed, it's existed since beginningless time. Again, it doesn't have a point of beginning. And that which 
didn't ever begin, how can it end? Only something that came into existence can go out of existence. So it doesn't have a point of cessation either. And if it has no beginning and no end, to talk of it enduring now, existing momentarily, is also nonsensical. And then let's go further. As Shamakunji Yala says, look at the very mind of that person who is watching and meditating. It is free of beginning, cessation and dwelling. Colorless and formless, it does not reside anywhere, in or out of the body, it has no innate nature. As I said, for if the mind really existed, it would have the characteristic of color and shape. But it doesn't. One needs to look at this. One may think mind has a triangular shape, or mind has an oblong shape, or mind has a circular or square shape, or whatever. But of course it has none of those. Again, what color is mind? Even to ask the question in a way is absurd. But we should ask it because even though we may intellectually realize the mind doesn't have a color or shape, in a way emotionally we're still clinging to to it having such a thing. So we have to exhaust that. Look into mind and ask does it have any of these characteristics of color, orange, yellow, blue, whatever it is. And then location. If it really existed, it would be able to pinpoint and say, here it is. But we can't find that. If we say mind exists in the body, then in what organ does it rest? If it exists inside an organ, its awareness will be confined to that organ. But it's not. It knows all this. In that case, it must be outside of my body. Well, if it's outside of my body, it's no use to me. It could be on the roof but it wouldn't be anything to do with my experience. It might as well be an outer space. If it's outside of my body, it's no connection with my experience. So I can't say it's out of the body either. And to say, well, it's a bit of both, it's both outside and inside, is to compound the error. So you see, we can't find mind having a location. Says so it's got no color, no location. It has no existence in time either. So in time, in location, and in extension, the three categories of something that would be existent, it can't be found. As he says, it has no innate nature, no characteristic by which it can be grasped, in which we can say, here it is, I've, I've got it. Therefore settle in a thought-free state without any intellectual grasping whatsoever. This is commenting on the third line in the root text about the analytical meditation, which Keshi Cheko says, the remedy too liberates itself naturally. And the meaning of that is that this searching meditation, this searching for the nature of mind and discovering it's empty, is just a remedy if one thinks that emptiness is something that's truly existent or that what I've discovered is just that the reality is nothingness the ultimate truth is nothing exists there is nothing at all this is an example of a remedy being taken too far understanding that mind has no substantial nature is to free us from clinging clinging to mind as a as a entity, 
which as I said is the cause of the disturbing emotions and consequent suffering. But that's all it is, it is a remedy. The idea that the mind is truly non-existent is just as delusory as the mind is truly existent. We, in fact, as the one Siddha says, although both are intellectually equally delusory, it is worse to believe that. Because the consequences of believing in nothingness are, of course, that you have no validity, you see no validity in cause and effect. So, when you've done the analysis, don't carry on pressing it too far. In other words, let it go. As he says, let it be liberated naturally. Let go of the remedy. Take the medicine for as long as there's a problem, no longer. And that means in a specific session of meditation, you do the analytical phase for some time, but then you have to let go of it. And what should follow it is the settling phase. So there's settling, or jogam, settling phase of meditation. Uh, The root text says, the essence of the path is to settle in the nature of alia, the ground of all experience. Alia, it's not a Turkish dress designer. Alia means means basis or ground. The essence of the path is to settle in the nature of alia, the ground of all experience. In the um, Mahayana Abhidharma, uh, especially taught in a mind-only school, uh, it said there not just six consciousnesses, six consciousness groups, but eight consciousness groups. It was beneath the ordinary sense consciousnesses and intellect, there are two more subtle consciousnesses. The manas, or egoic consciousness, which is the kind of reflex within mind that is continually grasping all experience and labeling as mine. It is, in a sense, the ego mechanism. It's there before, immediately before and after every moment of experience in the samsaric state. And that manas itself and the other ordinary consciousnesses rest on the what is called the base consciousness or the alia, the ground consciousness. And the alia consciousness is that which is continually changing. It's not a unchanging state, but it is the basis of consciousness from which every particular event in consciousness arises. So it's where the imprints, the impressions of every moment of consciousness and every activity are stored. So it can be called a storehouse consciousness or an appropriating consciousness. It moves from moment to moment. It moves from life to life. In fact, it's the earlier consciousness that moves from life to life. And it is there in every moment between thoughts. So, in fact, in the Kajapa system, it's often said that the alia is really the face of the Buddha nature. So here the instruction is to, that when, the analytical medit- when you've done the analytical meditation, then let go of this examining through concepts and now settle in the space that has opened up in the alia, the ground of all experience. Now Rinpoche 
said that this is at this point the ultimate bodhicitta meditation becomes a kind of that Mahamudra, like Sutra tradition Mahamudra, because this mind in which this earlier mind, this basis mind, which is there all the time between thoughts, and which we now resting in by giving up the analysis, if we look at it, it has the characteristics of luminosity, emptiness, and unceasingness. It's luminous because it is experiencing. It is not a blankness. It is that which is aware. So, that is its clarity or its awareness. And yet at the same time, it isn't any entity. Through the analytical meditation, we've cut through any idea that the mind is any kind of substantial entity which has characteristics through which it can be grasped and said, here it is, it exists substantially. So it is clarity or awareness, yet at the same time it is like space, it is completely empty. And it's unceasing in that all manifestations, all appearances and thoughts are continuously arising from it. So it is seltongagme, clear or luminous, empty and unceasing. So as we become more and more used to this meditation of resting in the alia, following on from the uh, analytical meditation, then our experience of Mahamudra becomes stronger and stronger. And so Rinpoche said that then we can see from that how gradually through the meditation becomes stronger and stronger, then we will be able to develop the, the what are called the, the four yogas of Mahamudra. So the first one of course is the what we call in Tibetan Sechik or one pointedness. That is our mind as it becomes stable in this settling gradually becomes undivided until through a combination of calmness and insight, it is able to remain focused at all times. So there becomes no difference between the state of mind in meditation and the state of mind outside of meditation. And this state of seti or one-pointedness has itself three degrees. I cause inferior, medium and superior. And if we Compare this to the path of progress in the ordinary Mahayana, which talks about, in which the path of progress is five, the five paths and the ten bhumis. When we achieve the highest level of one-pointedness through this Mahamudra meditation, we have achieved the highest point of the second of the five paths, the path of application. And then as we progress in that meditation, we see the nature of ultimate reality for the first time, first time without any intervention by concepts or labels. We see it directly, seeing our own face nakedly, we could, we could say. And this is the second yoga of Mahamudra, which is called Intibantodrao, or the unelaborated. Unelaborated because all the concepts we've been using to label our experience before, like 
existent or non-existent and all dualistic concepts momentarily fall away when we see the true nature of mind not through a medium of concept or label but directly and so that is equivalent to the path of vision and the first bodhisattva noble level the joyful level as we stabilize that gradually we achieve the third of the four Mahamudra Yogas which is called Ruchi or one taste, one flavor this is where our experience of emptiness of the non-conceptual emptiness gradually begins to pervade all our experience so that everything, all appearances that arise are kind of inseparably blended with emptiness so they have one kind of flavor a kind of equality not an indifference but a, like in all the infinite variety of experiences we have we experience at the same time as their infinite variety their essential emptiness and that is a, through that we progress through the second to seventh noble levels of the bodhisattva path and the fourth of the five paths which is called the path of meditation third path of course is the path of vision and then finally we reach to the fourth yoga of Mahamudra which is called the Gomme or beyond meditation here there is our meditation is uh, of, uh, on emptiness non-conceptual meditation of mind is like our mind is blended with emptiness at all times so there is no further object to meditate on we don't have to resolve anything nothing has to be as it were dissolved into emptiness by the power of our meditation everything is arising as sealed by emptiness so this is called Gomme or beyond meditation it is the level that Kamapadusam Champa reached and on the uh, of the five paths this is the fifth and final path the path of normal learning on which Buddhahood arises so in the Bodhisattva level is eighth, ninth and tenth and then finally the eleventh Bhumi which is in the Mahayana system Buddhahood so Rinpoche stressed that these four Mahamudra Yogas are possible to, to reach through this ultimate Bodhicitta meditation in the, in the, in the Lojong so I think we've gone a little bit long tonight but uh, I hope you'll be okay with that because uh, we needed to have some tangible achievement tonight I mean even though, even though tangibility is an illusion it's, it's a kind of comforting one to go to bed with so let's, uh, let's do that uh, and then tomorrow we're still in point two but tomorrow we, we, turn to, we return to the level of everyday life with a conventional oh no no we don't we still have a little bit more we have the after meditation for the ultimate bodhicitta to do but I think we better leave that till tomorrow so let's finish tonight now by uh, maybe sitting for one minute and then dedic in silence and then dedicating merit